Hi there, Arthi here. A quick heads up, this episode contains a conversation about sexual assault that may be upsetting to some listeners. Okay, I'm recording. Here we go. All right, so Justin Baldoni, um, I'll tell you, I'm a huge fan of yours. Oh, stop. I, I totally fell in love with you from Jane the Virgin for all the wrong reasons. And uh... <laughs> <laughs> Justin Baldoni is best known as Raphael, the sex symbol from the TV series Jane the Virgin. You look familiar. Really? He's the guy who intimidates other men. Tuesday, Thursday, buys and tries, and Saturday, I blast my core. I go to get to the gym more. Wow. Gets any woman he wants. Not writing anything right now. What do you want? And of course, he is oh so self-destructive. So you need to go back down to the kids' club before you blow my whole deal. Leave now. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Art of Power. I'm Arthi Shahani. Today, Justin Baldoni is not trying to be his TV character. In real life, he feels trapped by the expectations put on that fictional guy. And he's on a very public journey to explore how his values are different. We've all had the experiences as young boys where our emotional sensitivity, our vulnerability, our compassion were then used as a weapon against us. We've all been there. We just don't want to talk about it. Why? Because talking about it makes us weak. We talk about his relationship with pornography, his first sexual experience, one he describes as non-consensual, his insecurities while working alongside a very talented woman, and what's compelled him to question so vigorously what it means to be man enough. I just want to kind of make an observation first, which is that we have similar hair. <laughs> that that that's absolutely true. These long, beautiful, dark locks flowing over our shoulders. You're my hair goals, by the way. <laughs> uh, you're my body goals. <laughs> hey, we'll talk about that, I guess. Yeah, we will. The second I say that, I feel bad because I have read Justin Baldoni's first book. It's called Man Enough. And in it, he talks about how he struggled with body dysmorphia, a condition where one can't help but fixate on their perceived defects. I know actors are different from their characters, but it's hard to really remember that. In real life, you're the man who doesn't want to be Raphael, and you're tired of trying to be that. Yeah, it's confusing, isn't it? <laughs> it's, I mean, part of me wants to say it's surprising, but maybe it's not. But I guess just, can you talk a little bit about that? You know, I think what was appealing about Raphael was that he kind of fell into the box of the way we condition I believe women to want a man. Mm -hmm. What we want, what we condition women to see is attractive as a man and what we condition men to aspire to be in a man. Mm -hmm. As a boy, I grew up being told that version of me was going to get the best results in our country, in our world, mm -hmm. to take up space, to be, 
to be as good-looking, as ripped as I can, to have as much money and status and wealth. All of those things are rewarded. Mm. Um, and those are all external. And what I've learned is that all of those, that's a never-ending ladder. There's always going to be somebody who's bigger, stronger, faster, more successful, better-looking, more ripped than you, younger than you. And all of those things lead to unhappiness. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a bridge to nowhere. It's a ladder to nothing. One of the many relationships Justin writes about in Man Enough is his professional one with an impossibly talented woman, his co-star in Jane the Virgin, actor Gina Rodriguez. Why does he call me ma'am? I'm 29 years old. Do I look like a freaking ma'am to you? (laughs) Well, if I do, it's his fault. You were intimidated by her. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Explain a little. Well, Gina is a force. Gina is a a magnet. Mm-hmm. Um, she's a powerhouse. She's she's smart. She's charming. She's so damn talented. She's funny and witty. Um, you felt all that the day you met her. Oh yeah, absolutely. And uh, and really, I hadn't been acting. I'd been just focused on filmmaking. You know, my path was really as a director. I had quit acting two years before. So when I got the job acting with her when it came time to really act when it wasn't just us auditioning and playing was really intimidating for me because I didn't feel like I was enough. I didn't want to be the reason that this show didn't work. I didn't Mm. want to be the weak link. I didn't want to be, and I also didn't want to be the guy that was just the quote unquote hot guy in the show. And you approached it in such an interesting way at first, as you recount in your book, you approached this feeling of intimidation and uncertainty by giving her advice about acting. Is that right? Well, not so much, a little bit. So Mm -hmm. the way that I was always taught, the way that many men are taught is to fake it till you make it. Mm -hmm. And it's to act as if, Mm -hmm. um, which I don't entirely disagree with. I think that Mm -hmm. there is a, there's a place for both, but you know, as a, as someone who hasn't acted in a while and who was just kind of nervous and insecure because again, this is somebody that, you know, can be laughing in one second and start crying and deliver like a, an Emmy winning performance in another. And I'm somebody that has to like sit in a trailer for two hours and think about like death (laughs) (laughs) to get yourself there, to get myself there. And so it's just, it's a bit intimidating. So I, um, I approached it with just fake it till I make it overconfidence. I'm good. I'm good. I don't need anything. I, yeah, I got it. What's that? All right, great. I'll do it again. And so when it came time, there are certain situations in the, in the first season that where I, as a filmmaker, naturally am more comfortable. So I would offer something when uh, deep down, I really needed the offering is the mm-hmm. point. So can you give me an example of that with her? There were just times when we would be acting and... Uh, I would notice something on my in my director brain. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't a criticism. It was, oh, if you did that, it would be amazing. And she was always like, oh, yeah, that's great. And she would just jump in and do it. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas I know if the situation was reversed, I would have probably, because I was already insecure, been like, oh, my God, I'm not enough. Mm-hmm. You can see something in me that I'm not doing well. So you're working alongside this incredibly talented woman, and sometimes you're giving her advice. 
it's not going in reverse. She's not doing that to you. And uh, listen, a lot of people, a lot of women in particular, a lot of women listeners will relate to this, feeling like they're the strong player and they're working with a guy who's giving them advice when he's... You know, it could be I, the other way. So yeah, I want to be. I want to just be a little more clear, though, in that it wasn't. Mm-hmm. I wasn't offering unsolicited advice all the time. That wasn't the relationship. Mm-hmm. And I and I and I see where you're going with it. And I've okay. been the guy. I've mansplained plenty. Um, in this situation with Gina, it wasn't that. I, mm-hmm. There were times when yes, I offered. Uh, I would offer something because I'm a filmmaker. That's literally what I am. I'm not an actor. Um, but it was always met with warmth right? Mm. The difference Mm. is had she done that for me, I would have become insecure and defensive. Mm. Now she, now that wasn't the case. She didn't just ever walk up to me and just like, Hey, I think you should do this. I think secretly she was waiting for permission to do that because she saw oftentimes that I was probably struggling or not sure. And it wasn't until a few seasons that I worked up the strength to be able to say, Hey, how would you do this? Because I cared so deeply about the show, about working with her, about the relationship, about wanting to be a good scene partner. It all came from wanting to feel like I was enough and not feeling like I was. And what I noticed is when I finally was able to be vulnerable with her and to ask her for help, for her advice, she was so ready and willing and warm and open to giving it to me. And what happened was she gave me such good advice. It changed our dynamic. It changed the way that that I uh, acted in these certain scenes. And then we got closer and we would, and then suddenly that gave me confidence and everything shifted. And that's kind of the way I use and talk about vulnerability. It's like, God, if we were just, if just, if we're just willing to take that step in that direction, mm-hmm. um, we're set free. And so is there something from that experience of working with someone so talented, finally building up the courage to ask, hey, what do you think I can do better? Having that kind of exchange. Is there something that happened there that's important for you for the rest of your life, your creative life moving forward? Oh, of course. When that part of me as a man, as a human, um, uh, when that wall comes down, when I feel like the the guard gates of the castle go (laughs) shut, that's how I know I need to go deeper. That's how I know I need to ask for help. Because mm. when the castle walls shut down, it's shutting down for protection. Right. Right? Because mm. vulnerability, the definition of it is um, to be something that can be used to attack you. Right? Mm. So if I'm vulnerable, that means I, I don't have my armor. That means the gate's open. And when that gate closes and I kind of shut down, I know that there's something deeper there. And that's really where my work is. That's really the work that I'm doing is whether it's in my relationships with my friends, my parents, Mm. my wife, I can see that image of the guard gate shut. And when it shuts, I got to, I got to be like, Oh, there's something there that I'm not thinking about. Crank it open. Yeah. (laughs) How do I crank it open? Just that like, you know, sometimes you need more than one person to crank it open. You need, you know, Mm. you need those team of people to just crank it open. You know, Justin, that is really what struck me in your book, Man Enough. Like, you talk about a lot of things very specifically and concretely. Like, you have not written a book that's sort of high-level truisms about the importance of vulnerability. You have given 
concrete examples through and through from your own life. I mean, you talk about your addiction to pornography. You talk about your insecurity about your penis size, right? You talk about taking your wife's placenta and making it into smoothies to help her with postpartum depression. I mean, like, it's a very vivid account. And I guess I'm wondering, like, what compelled you to be so balls out honest? And yeah, I really pun intended. Yeah, totally. (laughs) First of all, it's because every man has these same feelings and nobody talks about it. Um, because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter, uh, what the world thinks maybe about my body or my penis or what happened. It doesn't matter if I'm ripped or buff or big or whatever. What matters is what that young boy who's trapped inside of me feels about his body. And all of us men have been there. We've all been there. We just don't want to talk about it. Why? Because talking about it makes us weak. Even you being so shocked that I talked about it is part of the problem. Mm-hmm. Because you as a woman being like, I can't believe you did this is reinforcing to me as a man that I shouldn't have. And this is what happens. And it's not, and it's not, and it's Uh not that you meant to do that, but that's what happens to men all over the country and the world is like, we can try to be vulnerable, but oftentimes what I, and I get hundreds of messages like this, if not thousands for men saying, yeah, but then I was, and she rejected it. But the, the final answer to your question is this. Because I had to, because I, 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 because I can't just write that top level book about it because Mm. those books have been written a hundred times and the books that I've read from men don't go into the details of the personal accounts and the stories that Mm. I craved because I never had this book. I never, a man never showed me these things and I want other boys and men to know that it's okay. We're all human. Mm. That's the tricky thing with vulnerability is we all know, I think inherently that vulnerability is strength. I think every man, even the ones that, you know, the the whatever they're called, the red pill guys and all of these, mm-hmm. you know, all of these types of alpha dudes, mm-hmm. I think every man knows deep down that vulnerability is strength, that we need to share, that we need community, that we need to talk to other guys. Mm-hmm. But what's not talked about is that vulnerability is often used against us as it relates to our community with other men. Meaning? Meaning it's not safe. Meaning we've all had the experiences as young boys where where our emotional sensitivity, our vulnerability, our compassion, our empathy were, were then used as a weapon against us. And we're conditioned, as Bell Hooks says, to commit soul murder at a very young age. Mm. to engage in that psychic act of self-mutilation, to cut ourselves off from our feelings in order to maintain strength and pledge allegiance to a club that doesn't even exist. What's an example of when you did that as a, as a young boy? Oh, there's so many examples. Oh man, I remember I didn't even, I, I didn't even talk about this in the book, but I remember being, I don't know, like 10 or 11 and, and you know, as boys, we would get erections all the time and mm-hmm. have no control of them, mm-hmm. but nobody prepares you for it. But I remember, one time I was, God knows, you know, the wind can blow in a certain direction when you're 11 years old and you can have an erection. <laughs> and I remember 
like being with another boy and I was like, oh man, it's happening again or something. And I was like looking for that community Mm. uh, with this other boy and I kind of made a joke about it to him. You know, thinking like he would be like, oh, my God, yeah, that happens to me all the time. And then the next day, this rumor started about me at school. Oh, wow. About how I touched myself or something. I remember it was like, I don't, I don't remember what it was, but I remember getting on the school bus and everybody laughing. Mm. And I had no idea what was happening. And then, of course, because I had so many girlfriends, mm-hmm. the girls were like, hey, he just said this. Mm. And that's why they're laughing. And then, of course, what do I do? I, I then fall into myself. I go inward. I feel terrible. I feel like that's not at all what happened. You know, I'm not, I wasn't touching myself in front of somebody else. I was making a joke about how my body's changing. And of course, another boy then uses that to one up me in that ladder to put me down to build himself up. But, you know, I I don't know if a lot of men have been uh, in that situation, but I can tell you that there are little examples that happen all the time of ways our vulnerability is used against us. You know, even as adults, it's used against us. If you're if you're stressed at work, or if you confide in a coworker that maybe you're overloaded and you don't have too much, and that coworker maybe you think it's a friend, but is gunning for your job. Who knows what that 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 man will do? We don't have trust with other men because over the course of our lives, we've been told over and over again that oftentimes those men will use true vulnerability against us. I want to talk about now your first time having sex. And to be clear for folks listening, I'm only bringing up things that you have written about in your book. (laughs) I am not prying obnoxiously into things you have not offered, right? And you write about in your book the first time uh, not being a good experience, even being a yep. non-consensual experience. Can you tell me a little bit about your college relationship? Yeah. So uh, my first my first time having sex, which I read about in the book, interestingly enough, wasn't something that I thought about very much over the course of my life. Hmm. I was 20, and I was in a relationship. Uh, I was a freshman in college going into sophomore year. And um, it was, it ended up being a bit of an emotionally uh, manipulative relationship. Mm. I I hesitate to say abusive, but it was right on the, it was, it was teetering on the, on the razor's edge. Mm. And I was, uh, I was a boy that, that was a people pleaser. I, I felt like she was out of my league in many ways. And I just Mm. remember wanting to make her happy. My world uh, was about her. I had lost myself completely. And when it came time to, you know, sex and intercourse and things like that, what I talk about in the book is this idea of many people of faith doing, you know, I think I said what we colloquially call, it's like everything but. Everything but intercourse. Everything but actual physical intercourse. Which I believe at the end of the day is still sex, right? If Mm -hmm. I think about it now as a grown man, Mm-hmm. It's all sex. It's all sex. But you didn't want to have intercourse. That was important to you. But what was important to me back then was like I was holding on to this idea, right, of that intercourse is sex. And I was very clear with her in in that and not ready and not really wanting to and 
but at the same time wanting to you know explore and have fun and mm-hmm. and uh I was young I was you know 20 years old 19 20 years old and the first time uh we were doing everything but and of course without my permission uh I found myself uh penetrating her and that was when I pushed mm-hmm. her off her and I said what the hell hmm. and what she say she says uh well, we've already done it now. So hmm. what's the problem? It's no big deal. See, it wasn't that big of a deal anyways. Huh. But what I went back to is that for me, that was too much. For me, I wasn't ready. And for me, my trust was violated. This oftentimes happens between people who are religious or spiritual and people who aren't necessarily. Is mm-hmm. It's like, what's the big deal? Mm-hmm. We did it. It's fine. It's not a big deal. Right? And so when you get to that point, then, you're, then you are... Um, you're essentially discounting somebody's experience and feelings and something that, again, many women have experienced over and over again at the hands of men. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we want something, we can be manipulative as human beings, mm-hmm. uh, especially as young human beings. When you have a power dynamic where there is one person who holds the power and another person who wants to please or who doesn't have the power. Mm-hmm. You describe that moment as non-consensual. And as you just said, it's an experience that a lot of women will relate to. And I guess I'm wondering, like, it was non-consensual, but then in that moment, I'm interested in your reaction in that moment and the point at which you revisit it and say, hey, that was wrong. Yeah, the reaction in that moment was, that hurt me. Why would you do that? Anger. Mm -hmm flipped to yeah but i guess she's right because Mm -hmm. i was also in a relationship with somebody that would do the versions of you know uh the way we as men would say like don't be a pussy (laughs) man Mm -hmm. up right Mm -hmm. was like oh okay yeah you're right why am i making that a big deal quit being so sensitive justin quit being so so emotional about it and then it's not until you're you know revisiting your sexual trauma and relationships or whatever. And you go like, cause I'm not somebody that I ever thought would have. I was like, I don't have any sexual trauma until I realized, Oh shit. Mm. The first time I had sex was actually, I think that's trauma living somewhere in my body that I have to deal with. Cause I, cause that's what we do as men. We drown it out so much that we don't even realize we have it mm-hmm. until you start doing that work and you do the work and you're, and you're digging stuff up. I think a lot of us men don't even want to dig stuff up because we're afraid of what we're going to find. I I have men in my life who had no sexual trauma only to find out when I started doing deep inner work that they were abused. Mm. Mm -hmm. And the majority of us men know at least what, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 1,000 men. I mean, how many men do each of us know? Well, if we know that one in five boys is molested before the age of eight, guess what? You know a lot of young boys who have been molested who don't even maybe – realize it or who have internalized it or haven't talked Mm -hmm. about it Mm -hmm. who was i going to go talk to and say like this just happened to me i feel weird about it i didn't have any male friends that i could go and talk to about it the guys in the track team that i was on absolutely not they'd be like dude you just got you just scored Mm -hmm. that's how we that's how we function that's how you're supposed to feel about non-consensual sex is you got to have it well, there's not even non-consensual sex isn't a thing even a a thing that's not that's not a you you don't put non-consensual or consensual in front of sex when you're that age. Or guy. You just right. put, are mm-hmm. are you having it? Right. Are you lucky enough? Are you man enough to even be having it? And if you are, don't complain about it. 
Plus, she's hot. You're not allowed to have feelings about it. You're not allowed to not be ready. And maybe that's changing now. But it, but from what I've seen in the men I've talked to, it, it, it isn't enough, and it hasn't been. After the break, Justin Baldoni addresses skeptics. I can imagine you, whoever you are, looking at me, like listening to me talk, looking at the way that I look, and being like, this guy's full of shit. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Art of Power. I'm Arthi Shahani. I'm compelled by what you're saying. I'm 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 feeling you, right? Um you got me. And I can easily imagine there would be some listeners, maybe it's a contingent of men who might be listening to you and thinking this vulnerability thing it's performative. You're staking out ground in a vulnerable space so you can appeal to ladies who are your prime, you know, fan base. Um what do you say to men who are cynical about this vulnerability talk. Well, the whole it's it's funny you say that because again, when I first when I did the TED talk, I had no idea. I had no idea what was going to happen. Mm-hmm. This is the script that we've been given. Right? Girls are weak and boys are strong. And when TED posted that first clip and it got like 50 million views, mm-hmm. and I started seeing the response by men being like, "Oh, he's just he's just trying to get with, you know, he's trying to get laid." Mhm. A version of what I just said. I came here today to say, as a man, that this is wrong, this is toxic, and it has to end. So what I would argue is, like, I get it. I, to those guys, I hear you. I feel you. I can imagine you, whoever you are, looking at me, like listening to me talk, looking at the way that I look, and being like, this guy's full of shit. And I can't say anything to convince you otherwise. That's on you. Your work is is rushing to the judgment and wondering why that makes you feel that way. What about what I'm saying triggers you to the point where you need to then put me down? Mm-hmm. Is it to build yourself up? Because if that's the case, and you ask yourself why enough times to get to the point of what about this message, what about this bothers you or makes you feel this way, then I would argue that that's the exact same thing that's been that we've been doing to each other as men from the beginning and that's why we're here in this place at all mm-hmm. so it it's at the end of the day it's about it's not about me it's about them mm. you know i didn't ask to be on your show mm-hmm. i didn't ask to be on this to to mm-hmm. be on this podcast at the end of the day i want you know i want the book to reach the men that it, that who need the book if the guy doesn't need the book he doesn't need to read the book i can't reach everybody it, it's a version of the young boy you confide to about your erection and he needs to go and and mock you for it that's but again why did he do that i also have compassion for him right why did he do, why did he need to go do that he needed to go do that because that's how he gained power and at the end of the day there's power dynamics at play for all of us men what i can say is uh the parts of me that uh you know, whether it be the book or, you know, 
what I'm doing as it relates to men and vulnerability. This is uh, this is very masochistic if you think I'm doing it for for that. It's not. This is. I I, I would be a bit of a. I, I'd be a bit of a masochist in the sense that I would be, uh, it's not fun. Let's put it that way. It's interesting, Justin, because, you know, I feel from you the kind of reluctance, like you're willing to talk about things you've written about in the book, but it doesn't actually seem to give you pleasure. Like I feel it actually, this, this sort of what you've just described as it's hard for you too. Like I'm literally feeling that energy from you. Well, it's, I mean, who, first of all, and I don't want to judge anybody, but if this stuff was fun to talk about, there's something wrong with you. Like it's not, <laughs> I'm sorry. And maybe that's, I might regret saying that in a couple of days, but it's trauma. Who wants to go to therapy? Therapy is something you go to, to better yourself. It's an emotional gym. It's just, you know, it's, it's, it's not a, it's not a fun thing to do to go and bear your soul and expose your, the darkness mm-hmm. and, and feel the way you feel about yourself. Sometimes you go to expose it, to heal. Mm-hmm. And the only reason I'm doing this is one to help other people heal, especially men. And also for myself. Now it's not fun. If it was fun, sure. Then I'd be like, Okay, this guy's full of shit. <laughs> like, <laughs> hey, yeah, let me just talk about all this stuff and like have no feelings about it at all. That's, you know, that's that's not real. I'm a human being. I'm married. I mean, look, I'm running a I'm running a film studio. That could be my entire career. Right. The the income or the money or whatever somebody is going to think that I'm doing this for is on them. I don't need it. I'm doing it because I honestly believe if we could fix this problem, mm-hmm. if we could if men could get in touch with their hearts, mm-hmm. if we could exercise our our emotional sensitivity, our compassion and empathy, mm-hmm. half of the problems, if not all of them, in the world would disappear. Because mm. I believe that, that most everything is linked to this. There'd be no war. This being a version of masculinity this, that... This being, this being this need as men to be all powerful, all wise, to prove ourselves, to exercise dominance over another, to to sit at the top of the food chain, to be individualistic and to to be on our own, mm-hmm. to not ask for help, to, to think we know the answer. To see power as zero sum and hoarded. Exactly. Well, there you go. Perfectly. And um, mm-hmm. it's the beginning connection between the head and the heart. Justin, you write about your ongoing battle with pornography. Mm-hmm. Do a little bit of the setup for me here. When did this addiction start for you? I was 10 years old, and I was introduced to internet porn and the and with, uh, you know, basically like Playboy. Um by two other boys. And over the course of my uh, middle school years and high school years, especially at times when I was feeling the worst about myself, at the loneliest, mm-hmm. mixed with the 
raging testosterone and hormones that we as young boys develop, um, that became an outlet, Mm -hmm. became in many ways a source of medicine for me when I felt alone or when I felt rejected or when I was, you know, people were mean to me or I was being bullied or whatever. It was something that I would, it was, it was the thing that I could go to and, I went through long periods of my life where I didn't use it. And I say use it because it was a use. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I be, I'm very clear to say use versus watch. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. there was times when I didn't even want to look at porn. But mm. I would look at it. Mm. Not even because I was horny or I was interested in it. I was just like I needed something because I felt alone. And I'm interested in specifically what you describe as your addiction to it. Because... I mean, I can, I know plenty of people who look at porn and, and and I'll tell you this actually. So for me, I'm not a porn person. I'm not just pretending that I know some people actually are and they say they're not. And I think that for me, I'm not. Why do you think people do that, by the way? Oh, it's like pretending that you only watch documentaries on TV. It just, you know, it seems like the right thing to say. (laughs) Um, And like the reason I'm not is I keep thinking about like coercion and violence mm-hmm. and is this really a consensual act or is the the woman or the man who's doing this really hard up for cash and this is not exactly what they want to be doing like so like my mind goes there pretty quickly and mm-hmm. that that kind of kills it for me um so I'm giving that context not because I want some gold star around me and porn but just to sort of say you have the gold star <laughs> not seeking it but i'm i was interested in how you describe being addicted to it early and finding that to be a real problem and a real problem not for some like um lofty reason of principles but just for your own functioning and i wanted to understand that more well no so well actually it was so i had I'll push back a little bit. It's it's uh-huh. it's not that it was a real problem, not because of the lofty reason of principles. That's mm. also why it was a problem. Mm. Okay. So it's it's a hundred percent both, because mm. because there were plenty of times when I've looked at porn and had the exact same thoughts, and my heart was like, what? What are you doing? Why are you looking at this? Like this could be this is somebody's daughter. This is all of the mm, things so that you had the same thoughts I've had. Absolutely, right. the difference is mm-hmm. is the ten year old version of me mm. that was introduced to something long before he was ready. That then used it to cope with the the pressures of the world and the sadness that he was feeling. That's the part of the brain that's in the driver's seat, mm-hmm. and um, and so my journey of it has been. I remember when I went to a therapist um, who focused on this. At first, I was turned away. He's like, "No, you don't have it. You don't have an addiction to porn." Hmm. I'm saying, "No, no, hold on. I'm I'm saying that I don't want to look at porn anymore. So can I talk to you?" And he's like, "Well, you're not using it enough, and uh, you seem to be in control of your use of it. So therefore, you don't really. You're fine, right?" And I'm saying, "Hold on a second. (laughs) The fact that I still." have used it when I don't want to is an indicator that I have an issue with it and therefore I would like help. So I found somebody else, uh-huh. right? So 
I'm not anti-porn. I want to be very clear. I'm not anti, because this, this is a very confusing and polarizing topic for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. I am anti my relationship with it. And again, for me, uh, I am addressing my issues with it, being a being somebody who um, believes in equality, being somebody who is spiritual, being somebody who who doesn't look as hum- at human beings as objects and finding myself in situations where I am looking at human beings as objects is enough for me to go, this is a problem. Mm-hmm. And then compounded with, I can't share it with anybody. I don't want to talk to anybody about it. I'm afraid to talk to my wife about it or I'm afraid to talk to my friends about it early on in my marriage and in our relationships. That then says, when you when shames bring, then of course you have an issue. Mm. Because the shame is an indicator of that. The shame is an indicator and doing something that you don't want to do is an indicator. So that was why was one of the reasons why I talked about it. Mm -hmm. Also because I get so many messages from boys and men and also from women who've reached out saying, what do I do? My husband's addicted to porn. What do I do? My boyfriend. Hey, man, I can't stop watching porn. I'll watch Mm -hmm. for eight hours a day. People will just message you that before you started publicly talking about it or after? Ah, before. Interesting, and that's what, and that's yeah. the thing about that's the thing about men and boys is we don't have anybody. So the second we see somebody who is like, oh wait, I think he could hold that for me without attacking me, or I think that there's there's a safe place here, and that's what I found so interesting. It was one of the reasons why I didn't back out from writing the book. One thing I want to understand about it then is how do you proactively fight? the addiction uh it's it's taking the shame and the judgment and the weight mm-hmm. off of the thing mm-hmm. looking at it objectively and questioning and asking how does this serve me how does this serve my soul my spirit if i believe i have a soul mm-hmm. and i do and i believe that the purpose of my life on this planet is to develop all of the spiritual qualities that i will need for where i'm going next like a baby in the womb developed its eyes and ears and it didn't need them for the womb. It didn't need its feet or its skin or its toes or its brain or its sense of smell for the womb. It needed them for where it was going next, which was two inches away the whole time. Mm-hmm. And suddenly it's born into this world. It dies of the womb. It's born in this world. It needs all of those things. If I believe that I'm here in this world to develop the spirit, the spiritual attributes, honesty, compassion, empathy, justness for where I'm going next, then I have to look at everything that I'm doing, all of my behaviors and ask, is it serving that? What am I developing? Hmm. Is this helping me progress in my growth or is it hindering my growth? Why is it important to you to undo this model of masculinity that's sort of about, you got to be manly in that, that kind of way? Why is it important to you to undo that? I don't know if I, I don't know if undo is the right term the reason i say undefined is that many men have prescribed to a definition of masculinity that they didn't sign up for mm-hmm. it's been passed down to us from generations and generations and i believe it is hurting us far more than it's helping us mm-hmm. and you know we can say patriarchy benefits men but i also believe it hurts us and it kills us you know, look at us as a collective species. We kill ourselves at far higher rates than women do. Mm-hmm. We resort to violence 
at far higher rates than women do. We take countries into war and destroy the earth and ourselves in the process. Mm -hmm. And so much of it can be healed if we would just take the time to heal ourselves. And it's not some like deeply like spiritual thing I'm talking about. I'm talking about like just challenge the norm, ask questions, be willing to be comfortable in the uncomfortable. It's interesting because your take, it's a very different take on power and where you get your power from. It's not mine. It's not mine. I mean, there's been, people have been talking about this forever. No, but you espouse it. I'm not saying you're the first. Yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, yeah. It's what is, I don't know. It's like we think about power and the things that we do in the name of power and what we do for power and how, and what we do for money that like this elusive symbol of, of power and dominance. Like we have to, we have to kill other people or beat other people up in order to be powerful. We have to put other people down in order to pull ourselves up. We go to the gym and we like put on how many plates can we put on? That's, that's power. That's strength. We slave away 80 hours, hundred hours a week. Are you sleeping, bro? I haven't slept in two days. Oh, that's, that's cool. Right. That's you're, you're on track. You're, you're going to become powerful, mm -hmm. successful. We like, we have all these measures of success and we're willing to sacrifice so much and go through so much pain, but we won't do that internally. We won't, we can't, we won't take that same thing and go in and sit with ourselves and be like, wow, I feel I'm really messed up <laughs> right now. I need help. I'm really sad. Mm -hmm. I'm really angry. What, why am I, what am I angry about? It's not about her. It's not about that thing she said. It's not about him. It's not about how he talked to me. What is it? What's underneath it? We don't take the time to do that. So we don't know ourselves. Do you feel more or less powerful embarking on this? <laughs> let me tell you everything and let me be public about this journey I'm on. Um, I say both. It's not just one thing. It's not just, I feel powerful or I feel this. I feel free when I talk about it. Hmm. I feel, do I feel powerful? No, power is not the right word. I can tell you when I don't feel powerful is, is knowing that, oh yeah, there's going to be pushback or oh, there's going to be guys who disagree with me or there's going to be people that call me names. That part of my brain that goes off absolutely is like, no, 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 this is a terrible mistake. Stop what you're doing, Justin. Don't do this anymore. Hmm. Like, because it wants me to feel powerful. It wants me to be seeking that validation carrot that leads to nowhere. Mm -hmm. And then the part of my brain that, that actually it's not the brain, it's the heart that reminds me that what I'm doing um, is powerful is really the part that matters, which is sharing our personal stories, sharing our story to validate somebody else's, helping pull somebody else up. Um, because as we know, teachers learn. So the more I talk about myself, the more I teach, the more I share this stuff, the more I become also self-aware and, and, and recognize things in the moment. It's liberating. And it, I think that should be our goal in life is to liberate ourselves, to free ourselves from all the things that hold us back and hold us down. My lessons from Justin Baldoni. One, if you have a behavior you're ashamed of, a habit you judge harshly, 
Put the blame, the judgment aside. Look at the underlying behavior with compassion and understand it. Two, speaking your truth is not always fun. It's not supposed to be, but you've got to do it anyway. It can help you and many, many others. Three, when you are tempted to shut down on the world, look at where your castle gates are closing and pull them back open. This episode of Art of Power was produced by Justin Bull, Hina Srivastava, and me, Arthi Shahani. Our intern is Paloma Moreno-Jimenez. Our executive producer is Kevin Dawson. If this episode landed for you, broke your brain, moved your heart, made you think, feel, whatever, hit subscribe. Leave us a written review on Apple Podcasts. They matter. Tell your friends and family. Your referrals keep us going. Let me know what you think. You can text me at 917-708-5139. On Twitter and Instagram, I'm at Arthi411. See you next week. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.